Hello, you're listening to Dear Seekers. This is your host, Sasha Shell. And before we dive into today's conversation, and let me introduce you today's guest, I have something very, very almost like spiritual to share. Is that、um, I recorded the intro, and when I was listening and trying to edit it, I realized the voice is so different. I wasn't sure it was because I pressed some button or the setting was. Different. I have no idea what I did, and I don't. To be honest, I don't recall did anything differently. And yet, the the voice you about to hear is still me, still Sasha, the host and creator of this podcast. But yeah, you tell me, the voice just feels like it's not even the voice is doesn't sound like me anymore. Even the personality of the voice. And it's not really like it's slower or it's you know lower or something. It just feels like a different person. Okay, I will leave you to be the judge. But I just want to let you know that's still Sasha, and I will let her, whatever that Sasha is, intro、uh, introduce you today's episode. Welcome to Dear Seekers. This is your host Sasha Shao. <laughs>、um, I don't know. Today I'm just in a very uplifting mood, and I'm really happy that you're here because I know there are so many times that we are distracted, overwhelmed、um, by all the choices we have on the internet. So much content, free content there at our fingertip. So. For you to choose to spend your time here with me today at this moment, I'm really grateful. And、um, if you're new here,、um, Dear Seekers is a podcast, and also I call it a community garden,、um, where we explore how our art- artistic endeavors and spiritual growth and personal growth intersect, how art in any type of form has saved, healed, or Taken us to a very spiritual level. In terms of spirituality,、um, I think it's a definition that is very, very depends on from person to person, very individual. To some people, might feel very religious in a very religious sense. For some people, might feel very nature and、um, centered oriented. For somebody, might be more about universe.、Um, So whatever that is, I hope that we're not letting this word spirituality kind of tie us down into one or two boxes, and that kind of like is a segue to introduce my guest today. My guest today is the first ever guest who is not from the city of Toronto.、Um, I'm gonna explain why that has been an option,、uh, that has been a choice for me, but. Um, this guest, her name is Jackie Kai Alice. She splits her time between Paris and Vancouver. And who is Jackie? Hmm, that's quite a very interesting and challenging question to answer to because, you know, Jackie has started and ended so many endeavors in her life, big and small. She opened an award-winning bakery and cafe in Vancouver after pursuing her passion for pastry in Paris. So much pepper, but 
<laughs> Since then, she has sold it to two of her original teams, and she wrote a memoir. A book that later became a national bestseller, and she also created the Paris tour that hosts pastry tours in Paris. And now she is an advice columnist for Virtuvie's Natural Habitat magazine, and is the head of product development for Fax Home.、Uh, there's so much things Jackie has accomplished in her life, in that quote quote sense that look. Good on papers.、Um, today we didn't talk any about that because those things you can actually go on her Instagram, her website, and many press has featured her、um, regarding those matters. But today we're focusing on her book, "The Measure of My Powers."、Um, so in our conversation, we talk about memory. How it's fluid, and it's always in motion, and how it kind of influence we see ourselves. We talk about her creative process of writing her memoir, and what she has discovered. And we also touch upon the digital footprint and exchange some thoughts on if that's crippling our opportunity to continue to evolve. Um, because it might become a shadow, dragging us back to the past. So, it's a very, very interesting and candid conversation. We call Jackie in a very trans- transitional space right now, as she's expecting her first baby at age of forty-two, and then they just move into a new house.、Um, so, it's a lot of ha- different things are happening right now in Jackie's life. And that was after she had already come to terms with not having any children. Actually, coming to terms with is not even the right way to describe it. She was more than okay. She was in love with her life before she was pregnant. So she definitely shares quite a bit、uh, about how she's feeling now and about becoming a mother at the end of the conversation. So yeah, this is a very good one. I really hope you enjoy it. And before we dive into to today's conversation, I just really hope that you can head to Apple Podcast or Spotify to give us a review or comment, because that would really help other people find this podcast and especially this episode. If you really enjoy it, and if you are a Substack subscriber, you will be able to、um, access this episode early. And then, plus many of the essays that I will be writing specifically just for Substack.、Um, all right. If you are not interested in subscribing to, on Substack, that's fine as well. But if you can stick to the end, then you'll be hearing why, for the longest time, I've been only choosing guests from Toronto. So yeah, I will share that at the end. Anyway, hope you enjoyed today's conversation. So I'm really grateful you're, you know, say yes to this podcast. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, this is this is up my alley. So I'm always happy <laughs> to talk about subjects like this. Thank you.、Um, so I think you are definitely no stranger to having a lot of things on your plate. Sometimes might not be at the same time. Sometimes it's one after another. Almost feel like I think my. Maybe before we get into the, my first question, maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit, and then maybe I can see 
even that in I will be intrigued to see how you introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, this is always really hard for me because I'm not really sure. Uh, I usually introduce myself dependent on what the other person is is interested in <laughs> because it's like kind of sounds like a big long resume if I start introducing myself with everything. Um, I would say that I, in general, am just like a creator. So uh, whether it's through food or design or writing or um, other things like photography or whatever it is, I I create. So um, and I usually pick the medium that is the most effective for uh, whatever I'm trying to communicate. So um, yeah, I've also started businesses and um, done lots of media stuff, but. I don't know. It's all over the map. Yeah, it's over the map, but in the best way possible. Because you know, in a society that we are almost expected to establish ourselves as a sort of expert and package our skills and identity into a box and with a bow and then deliver to whoever is on the receiving end, right? So for you to actually find the courage to you know not to care. About what other people think, and really dig into the each chapter in your life, not letting the previous chapter define your current one. I think that's very fascinating, and that's in precisely why I find you so intriguing. Is that your so many things, a vendor a, a endeavors you have done, they are not really highly relevant or related. I mean, they're definitely skill sets you can. Come from translated from one to the other, but yeah, they're still quite different in a way. Yeah, I think that it's 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 kind of a funny situation. I'm probably one of the most scared people that you'll ever meet, and I grew up、um, very fearful because my mom, who loves me so much, was always telling me not to do things. Don't try that. You're going to fail. You're going to get hurt. You're going to be disappointed. And、um, I think that I only became sort of this consciously cre-、uh, courageous because I knew that I needed to overcome that. And so you often find this with people where you know if someone feels like they're really unloving or insensitive and they try to work on that, they end up being. To the world, more loving and more sensitive than anyone else, because you know we're not born without fears and without our faults. It's just if we choose to tackle them, we end up being very good at them by skill. So I would say that it's a combination of me actively working on going, okay, what is it that I want, and what is it that I'm afraid of, and is it worth、um, jumping anyway? But also, I think I'm just the type of person that I have、um, a very low、um, inauthenticity meter, and so if something's feeling like it doesn't fit me, not to say that I'm always authentic, I'm not.、Mm. But if something feels like it doesn't fit me, I have a lower threshold of being able to stand that for myself. And so some people are are very strong, and they can. They can do that、right. for decades and decades,、um, but for me, it's almost like I can't. I feel like I'm dying inside, and so it I, it becomes a choice of: Am I going to live, 
or am I going to feel like, you know, am I going to live despite all these fears and all these societal pressures, mm. or am I going to um, just give up and feel like I'm not living my life forever? So it's, um, yeah, it's, I think it's a combination of those things that makes me just go and do things. Hmm, that is very interesting. And I think we often forget that when someone's showing so much courage, usually they're also very um, vulnerable and is not afraid to show their tenderness. And I can definitely sense that through your memoir, The Measure of My Powers. Um, I have to say, the first time when I read your book, I didn't really understand the reason behind how the structure of the book, because you'll be reading it in um, in timeline, and then you'll be reading one chapter which happened in 2017, and it would jump to a timeline of 2010. So I didn't really understand what was the reason behind that, because I have to say I was a little bit confused until recently I read um, um, another memoir by uh, Victoria Chan called Dear Memory. Um, in, the mem- in the memoir, she talk about how memories are, you know, always emotion, are fluid. Um, so that kind of reminded me of your book. So I reread it again. And this time I definitely had a better understanding or rather a more clear understanding of the structures of the book. Um, it's kind of embrace the idea of memory. Memories are not in chronological order. And it was that the reason how this book was structured? Yeah, so I structured the book in such a way that they are like memories. You know, we don't remember chronologically. So for example, if someone says, oh, I just had a horrible breakup, you know, you don't think back, what was the very first uh, loss and mourning I ever had? Oh, when I was one years old, someone took a toy from me and I felt, you know, horrible. Then, at, you <laughs> know, like two years, I, you know, someone took my bite of birthday cake and I cried. And then at 14, I, you know, it's like when you're, <laughs> when you're thinking about it, you're, you know, as you're washing the dishes or brushing your teeth, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that time when I was 20 and there was this guy. Oh yeah, that guy, he also had a breakup with this other girl and that was horrible. <laughs> and, you know, so it becomes sort of like this rambling thing, but the way that the, the chapters are structured is through theme. And so all the memories around loss, all the memories around courage, all, you know, and and so they become like a patchwork of, seeing who a person is and even when you're getting to know someone they don't tell you everything chronologically you you piece it together as time goes on as they tell you oh yeah when i was two this happened and when Mm -hmm. i was you know 30 this happened and so it's kind of like more of a natural way of of discovering someone Mm -hmm. i think and you say discovering someone did what did you discover about yourself like i think is that someone were you referring was yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, if someone's reading the memoir. Oh, you mean the um, reader? Yeah, the reader too. Mm. I mean, and not to say that I didn't discover anything about myself. I think that, you know, when you write anything about yourself, 
or put anything about yourself on paper, you discover something new about about you. Um, and so uh, there was a lot that I learned. I think biggest thing that I think I learned was, you know, I before I started the book, one of the biggest hesitations about writing it is just that I felt so much um, embarrassment and shame over some of the mistakes that I've made in my life, thinking that they were mistakes or thinking that they were shameful or, you know, even like some of the some of the moments where I just you never want anyone else to know about you, like like eating disorders and depression and, um, you know, failed marriage and all these things that people might, you know, hang on you as as failures. And also the idea that I stayed in a relationship that was so painful for so long, um, thinking that I was so weak that I didn't leave and have more um, self um, confidence or um, self love. And as I was writing it, I was, I was trying my best to both forgive the situation, but also forgive myself for some of these moments. And I think that it wasn't until a year after the book came out, I reread the entire book and realized that, you know, people are saying, oh, you're so courageous because you, you know, went to Paris and studied pastry and you're so courageous because you changed careers and you did this. But I realized that um, my greatest moments of courage were actually the very mundane ones, the ones where I was so depressed and I decided, okay, I'm going to live for one more day. Or, um, you know, I had the courage to uh, stay in a relationship long enough for me to feel satisfied that this was the right thing to do to leave. Um, I had the courage to leave when I did, um, you know, so it, you know, or I had the courage to, you know, get up and eat a chocolate chip cookie, go out and try to find something that made me happy, however small it was. So I think that I realized that like, sometimes we, we overestimate the big actions and we underestimate the tiny actions that actually create um, this kind of beautiful uh, character in us. So I think that's what I learned about myself. I think so many of us are almost have this urge to always celebrate the big moments, the achievements, the things that like going to bring us highlights. And one thing I was thinking, when we actually die, will anybody mention, you know, um, this person has has been featured in so-and-so magazines? <laughs> that kind of thinking really humbles me because, you know, the things we achieve, we wanted to achieve in life usually doesn't really matter afterwards. Um, are those mundane moments the, and days that especially, you know, the days that you're stay in bed, that you just cannot get out, you still have that courage to drag yourself out of the bed. Those are the moments are courageous in a way, but we, yeah, we don't really seem to, to celebrate them. Yeah, I think that... It- for me, I don't share all those moments on, on Instagram because I don't think that's why people are on Instagram too, right? Like, 
I don't, I don't share that, you know, yesterday was a really hard day for me. And, you know, I, I went to bed at 9pm. And I was like, okay, like, let's just hope tomorrow's a better day. I don't share these things on Instagram, because what I figure, maybe I'm wrong, but what I figure is people are dealing with their own stuff. And the last thing they they need is to also carry my emotional weight, (laughs) you know, until I have something to share with people that can give them something worthwhile, Mm. then I'm not going to share. um, Because I don't, not to say that I shouldn't be taking from my community. I think there's an exchange, but people are following on Instagram because um, you're gifting them your time and your energy and your perspective. And so I don't want to give them something that's not going to be worthwhile giving. I think that's why I don't share the stuff that doesn't need to be shared right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you are a very public person. Um, and then you also have definitely have the private part of yourself. So how, how do you kind of dance between the two, make sure that, you know, you still preserve that private part of yourself to yourself and to your family uh, while, you know, present your, your private life to a lot of audiences? Yeah, I think that, you know, it comes down to how, what's the purpose of sharing this? You know, if the purpose is, um, I think I can help someone else if I share this, or uh, this feels like an appropriate thing to share, or mostly like, will someone else get something out of this share, then I will share it if I feel comfortable. But otherwise, I keep it to myself or I keep it to um, my close family and friends who, who we do have a much more like give and take relationship. I do think that Instagram and social media is, um, is much more about giving than it is about taking. And so I'm not going to share just because I think that it might, you know, distract me for a couple of days or, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I don't know. I just, I, I always try to look at the intention and the purpose behind what I'm sharing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and then I wonder, um, I want to take you back to the the book again, your memoir. You wrote it quite a while ago. And then there's some, like, I wonder how, what was it like when you were writing it? Because the, the time in the, um, in the book has, has been from, you know, 2020, if I got it right, is quite a bit like a long gap uh, in between like duration. So did you like, what was the process like? Did you write the book in one go? Did you have snippets here and there? How did the book come about? Yeah, so I I wrote an outline uh, of the book, uh, chapter by chapter, and basically what the the message of each chapter would be um examples it was a very detailed uh book uh, outline and and um that really helped with the writing process because although many writers write very differently i i felt like for me having that structure to work from was really helpful uh i knew at the time i was you know doing a ton of different things like i was travel writing plus had the bakery plus was doing a lot of media stuff and 
And then I had the Paris tours out of Paris as well at the time. So I knew that I needed to set aside time to just focus on the book because, you know, going into your deepest, darkest pains is not something that, you know, you necessarily jump out of bed and want to do. <laughs> and yeah, so I was like, I'm going to procrastinate and there's always laundry to do if I don't get out of here. So uh, I, I went to a secluded area of central Oregon and I hold myself up in a cabin uh, for one month and Monday to Friday, eight hours a day, uh, I would just write. And I just took lunch breaks and took weekends off. And uh, my goal was just to write one chapter a day. And I knew that, you know, this wasn't, it didn't mean that the book would be done after a month. It just means you get everything out there. And then mm. after that was about, a year and a half of edits so it was just back and forth rounds revisions um by the end of the editing process i'd read the book so many times i had convinced myself that i was the most annoying person in the world <laughs> because <laughs> it's like anyone will be annoying when you've read the same thing like 50 times or whatever it is right so yeah it's um it's it's not an easy process, but it was very, very rewarding. Yeah. So when you finish the book, you exit this chapter, literally, of your life. What was the conclusion there? Um, I guess my question would be, because when I was reading it, I can feel like you were grieving something. You know, obviously, there is so much celebration as well. There's so much thing to say about other than grief. But I, I feel like you were grieving um, this first marriage you had, um, not in a way that you're grieving because you made a wrong choice, but you're grieving something there. So I wonder, um, when you exit this book, did something conclude it there for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more, as time goes on, I think it becomes more clear what this book had done for me. I wrote it because I knew that, you know, there would be a small chance that someone else might read it and be helped by it. And I also knew that it would make me a better person to have written it because, you know, you are always much stronger when, when you can come to terms with your own vulnerability and your, and the things about yourself that you're trying to hide become clear. You have nothing to fear anymore. And so I, I did it for those two reasons. Um, and I think at the time, I didn't know how much healing I still had left to do. So there was this one chapter. It, uh, I, I woke up in the morning and did my whole routine, went for a walk, had my coffee, sat down at the desk to write, and then I just couldn't write. And this happens sometimes. So normally what I would do is take another walk and I would come up with any word. It doesn't matter. Just pick a word, tree, pick a, you know, maybe or whatever it is, and then just start there and start writing. And it doesn't matter if that ends up in the book. It just is something that, you know, just gets you going. And so finally I thought the words came to my head and what if, so I thought, okay, I can start there. So I went back to the desk and I wrote down the words and what if, and then I just started crying 
to the point where you know when your body is crying but your mind is like why am i crying what's going on here and you're almost mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. auto analyzing yourself as your body's doing it and i just thought okay and then i i i said i thought you have to say something so i i said okay what are the first things you want to say to yourself and i started saying i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and I was like, who am I sorry to? And then I realized, oh, I'm sorry to myself. And I realized that I spent so much time trying to understand everyone else's perspective, understanding their histories, understanding you know, where, where they came from and why they would have done these hurtful things and not to excuse bad behavior sometimes, but, but everyone does have a story and everyone's just trying to get by. So you know, most of the time people aren't trying to be hurtful. They're just either scared or they don't know better or whatever it is. So, but I realized that I had to forgive myself for for staying in a relationship that was so hurtful for so long that I felt like I hadn't done my best to protect myself. And it wasn't until I forgave myself and said, no, this is exactly what you needed to do. Like you wouldn't have been at peace if you had left any sooner. it wasn't until then that I could sit down and calmly write that chapter, which ended up um, being, tell me that I'm beautiful. Um, and it, mm. the first words were, and what if he told me the three words um, that I long to hear or something like that? And it is um, that I'm beautiful or you're beautiful or something like that. And I don't remember the exact words of the book, but you know, these types of things, I think, made me realize, oh, there's so much healing. And even even yesterday, for whatever reason, I haven't read the book in years. And yesterday, I couldn't sleep last night. So I decided, oh, maybe I'll listen to the memoir again. I just had this craving to listen to it. And, and I listened to it. And I just thought, wow, it's so interesting. I'm still evolving so much to the point where my perspectives on some of these things have changed. And so only now can I look back and think to my and have a real sense of distance. And I imagine another 10 years from now, I'll, I'll think back and go, okay, you know what, this is, this is a lot. And, and you're absolutely right, which is such an astute observation which is this book was really just a cathartic healing of this portion of my life. And sometimes I wonder, oh, okay, what, what's the next portion of my life going to be? And how am I working through that at this moment? And I don't know, it's just constant evolution. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but... <laughs> mm, not long enough, because <laughs> I was just listening to it. I wonder... Um... You were mentioning you listened to the audiobook yesterday and had some sort of a new perspective. So what has kind of shifted in a way from, you know, all these years ago? Yeah, like there are things that I, at the time I remembered with such clarity and I realized that I have, because they're healed and I have no reason to remember them anymore, I actually forgot some of the things mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, that is what happened. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. And then I remembered. But this is a question I get a lot, actually, um, from from writers and and interviewers is how did you remember everything to such with such detail? 
And it's because when, you know, if, if someone were to ask you, describe the moment that you were in the most emotional pain, you could probably describe that situation like from, you know, what you were wearing to what the other person's facial expression was like, what time of day it was, what kind of smells were in the room. Like you could probably recreate mm -hmm. that and put yourself back in that. But it's because we remember mm -hmm. the things that are, um, have the most emotional impact on us, uh, good or bad. And, and so, now I was like, oh, wow, I didn't remember I wrote that in the book. And so I felt like, oh, okay, that must mean that I've healed to a large degree that that no longer needs to be held in the, in the cells of my body anymore. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Like I think memory is such a thing that we have maybe just, I don't read enough scientific <laughs> <laughs> articles about memories but i i just find it fascinating how you know a lot of things a lot of times our identity are tied up to our memory but yet our memories are fluid and then emotion as we talked about earlier then it means our identity is fluid and in motion right so it's like how can we I guess I don't even have a question here, but I, I think I'm just trying to talk out loud so I can think about this. So how can we actually be sure who we are? And is there actually a question about or answer to who we are? Maybe it's who we are is always fluid as well. So there's no no reason to chase after that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a good thought. I think I think about this frequently actually because you know, it's it's like when you're in a relationship with someone especially and years have passed and they go you've changed yeah. or whatever it is. And it's like, well, of course I have. You know, we're we're constantly evolving and thank goodness we are because if we didn't, we'd all still be, you know, one month mm -hmm. old babies <laughs> <laughs> with that same thinking, you know, and it doesn't mean that growth or change is mm. linear either. And it doesn't mean that every facet of us grows at the same pace. And so we could still be very much, you know, suspended in our teenage years in one aspect of our lives and yet be extremely wise and evolved in another aspect of our lives not to say that teenagers are not evolved they they really are but you know it's it's so organic that we can't even understand ourselves mm -hmm. half the time so you know and in, in the beginning in the in the uh, preface or foreword of the book i had written that you know for the rest of my life i'll be looking back at the these memories with greater clarity um and because the more you understand yourself and the world the more you have compassion for people and what they did in mm -hmm. in your life also we come to any situation with our given filter in that one moment in time and so we'll only ever see the world through the filter of our own prejudice or expectation 
you know, you can say one sentence to someone like, I don't know about that. And that can be read in a hundred different ways. And so even me, it's like, well, I think I'm saying, I don't know about that because of this one reason, but 10 years down the road, maybe I'll go, actually, I, I was saying that because I, I was afraid of moving forward on that or whatever it is you it's, it's constantly evolving. And, and I think, yeah, that's just life. (laughs) Hmm. So when I was listening to you talk about the inevitability of our personal change and, and involvement, um, I 100% agree. But actually a question popping to my head is about digital footprint. Because there are so many of our former self that we presented or gave it to the internet as evidence. Would that either later become like shadow to kind of follow us, even though those were our former self or the truth that we held on to then, but is still kind of following us along and for others to keep us not in a way countable. Um, that's not the right word. I'm trying to, I'm trying to choose, but I think it's almost become our opportunity to evolve has become dismissed and hardened because of those evident those digital footprint. Yeah, and and I think maybe, well, the first thing that pops into my head is just you know, there are so many more uh, societal pressures to stay the same because you have so many more Mm. people who have an opinion about how you should be and how you shouldn't be because you're putting yourself out there and also I don't know if people love when others change because they like the security of knowing that they figured you out they've put you in that box and they don't need to think about you anymore and so, you know, when you evolve, yeah. And that and is so true. That's everyone, like <laughs> f- for so many things, not just people, right? It's like, I have a secure job. Mm-hmm. I don't need to think about finding a job anymore. That gives me security. Um, but the reality is we could lose our jobs at any time. Like that's just how it is. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's it makes it harder to, it, it's just one more factor to consider as you're trying to expand is, am I going to expand in such a way that people will still accept me? Because I found acceptance doing this one thing. And so if I change, will they still like me? And I think that's such a beautiful human uh, question because it just means that we crave being in a community and we crave to matter to someone. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. it just makes, you know, for me, sometimes if I don't post on Instagram for a long time, because I just don't feel like it, or I don't feel like I have anything to share, people will actually message me and say, hey, you haven't posted in a while. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I don't know what to say. And then some people are like, hey, you haven't posted in a while. I just want to check in if you're okay. And I'm like, you get you get all of it and it's so cool Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um 
but it also is like, oh, if all of a sudden tomorrow I decide that I'm going to, I don't know, be a, a rock climber and that's going to be my life, how many people will vocalize their uh, non-support for me? And mm -hmm. will my community disappear? And so I think it's just this like primal human, you know, community, like need to like be a part of like a pack that makes us rethink. And now that we're in the digital age, it just is so much more massive than than just your immediate group. So. Yeah, because I think obviously I don't know this personally. I, I, if like, let's say back in like 80 years ago or 50 years ago, even there was no like internet, social media if you haven't seen anybody and you use in a way that you don't have any evidence for that person to compare you to your current self to your past self your former self so they don't really hold you accountable for <laughs> that person you already evolved from you yeah. know you they're like oh you like you know that was what you you talk about you you that was your your interest but you you're interested in this thing now it's just so different it's not on brand right <laughs> it's like it's like that kind of thing it's kind of i think it's in a way yeah i don't know how to describe it i just feel like it's kind of crippled in a way that how we not freeing in a way that how we wanted to you know change as you said and evolve and keep shifting in a way i mean i so my question to you is like your book, like, okay, sorry, to, before I, I ask this question is like someone um, interesting because I, I reached out to her for an interview, what she said really shocked to me, but then made me think about quite a bit kind of um, in conjunction with what we just talked about is that I asked her for the podcast interview and she said she's so afraid of uh, doing something that is so permanent um, and then something that is what, whatever she says is going to be permanently out there. That really made me think because yeah, that is true. Like what the conversation we're having right now, maybe tomorrow you'll feel differently or same. I, I will probably have a different perspective than something I said today. Then with what we're having this conversation right now, we kind of discredit what we like in the future, we discredit what we have now. Like I don't think so. So, with your book, were you ever scared or fear that something so tangible, something so personal out there for someone to hold on to, in the future they will be holding that you accountable in a way that because that was the the Jackie you presented. Yeah, I mean, the only my per I can see why people are afraid of this, especially especially now, um, you know, the culture has changed uh, and evolved for, for good, uh, overall good, I think, because we're so much more vocal about what we disagree with. And, you know, what has come out of that is cancel culture. So I think a lot of people are really worried about being canceled and, and saying something that 10 years later will not be as relevant and actually you know, there are lots of, uh, you know, you hear these stories about like movie stars and mm -hmm. political figures and all that who said something or did something, you know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, and now they know better, they wouldn't do it now, or maybe they would, I don't actually know who they are. So, um, but they have to go back and say, look, I, I'm so sorry. And, and, and 
kind of pay for those uh, social crimes or, you know, cultural crimes. But I think that that is just more evidence that we're none of us are perfect and that we're always evolving. And thank goodness that tomorrow I'll be smarter than I am today. And if I say something today that, you know, is punishable tomorrow, then okay. All right. Give me a chance to apologize. Give me a chance to learn from it. Mm -hmm. And it, it is less, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. Although I was listening to, um, you know, that comedian take Nataro. Mm. Anyway, she's she's a she's a really cool oh, yeah? comedian. I I just like her because she's so dry. Anyway, <laughs> you so like dry she jokes? Has a podcast. <laughs> yeah, she's like she's just so honest and so dry, and she's yeah, I really like mm-hmm. her. Um, anyway, she has a podcast called like Don't Ask Tig, and she had Seth Rogen on, and I just thought that would be a funny conversation, and they were talking about how um, comedians who were making really unsavory jokes, you know in the past, um, some of them refused to apologize for making these jokes. And Seth Rogen was saying something along the lines of like, you know, like if we're one, we should be apologizing for the things. And I would love to keep on evolving as a comedian and not everything that I do is going to be, uh, relevant in perpetuity. Like sometimes a joke just isn't funny a year from now. (laughs) And also sometimes it's just inappropriate a year right. from now. And he's and he's like, but does that mean that you just stop making jokes? And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. It's like, yeah, we make mistakes and we learn from them, but we'll just try to do the best that we can in the moment because with the information that we have, and that's kind of all we have or else we'll just stop creating anything altogether. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really... That's really true. And I think that, yeah, that's kind of lead lead up to that you talk about in your book is like, there's all these stories you share are so personal. And in the beginning, you also mentioned your fear of sharing these stories or even, you know, allow yourself to relive them in a way um, because they're so painful and personal, but you're still willing to put it out there for someone else to consume, to enjoy, to almost like reawakening some some of their pain to to heal as well yeah if you didn't share this book you worry about you know what if you know this book is too early to write because it's memoir memoir you talk about your your efforts you're like oh people wondering why you're writing a memoir so early (laughs) and you're like 80 years old supposed to be writing a memoir yeah so i think that makes (laughs) that makes totally sense because even you have to wait till 80 to be able to share something to conclude your life then, then that's such a shame. Yeah. I mean, people have, people have such great stories and, you know, you, you would never know who you pass on the street that is going through the most uh, horrific, painful, or, courageous and uplifting thing and we just don't know and I I used to travel a ton and and my favorite thing to do was sit at hotel bars and strike oh. up conversations with people because you, the people that oh you actually meet, strike up conversation I thought you were just people watching no no you just you just like hey how's it going you know and 
And most of the time people are really, it, it helps that I'm a woman, right? Because I think, uh, unfortunately, men <laughs> tend to be seen more predatorial uh, or predatory. So, but for me, I'm just, you know, very open and, and if they don't want to talk, that's cool. You know, I don't, I don't take offense to that, but sometimes you just, you know, you talk to someone, where are you, why are you in the city? Where are you coming from? And, and people will go into the most heartwarming and heartbreaking stories in their lives that they think are nothing, mm. but actually they're, they're everything because the only difference between me and someone else sitting at a hotel bar is that I happen to write it down on paper. And by some very lucky divine thing, you know, it's published and, and that um, I was able to string together some words and communicate the story. But every single person has a story about um, loss. Every person has a story about betrayal. Every person has a story about a time they were courageous. And they're all equally uh, inspiring. Uh, it's just, you know, so many people just don't think that it's anything to talk about. Yeah. I mean, this topic might get a little bit personal, so you can choose not to not to um, get into it. But um, you recently just got remarried again. Congratulations. Uh, that was a beautiful wedding. I, you know, I tend if I'm a fart. And then, uh, <laughs> and then you are expecting a baby. So in, a, in your memoir, you talk about you want it um, be a mother. Um, your first husband didn't want to. Those are you already share your memoir. So I think it's pretty out there. What are you feeling now as someone who, you know, are going to fulfill that, that, that dream or that, that thing they wanted for a while? Yeah, it's, it's a very complex situation. And this is probably one of those things that, you know, a year from now, I'll definitely have different opinions about, but I'll share where I am. Well, you can bring, you can come on, come on the podcast again. (laughs) We'll do, we'll do an update. Um, Exactly. So I, you know, after because when I first started dating my, my ex-husband, um, we were both on the same page. Yeah. We want to have two to three kids and have the, you know, white picket fence. That's what I thought I wanted back then. And I actually said this, I, this is so embarrassing. I was so, I was such a funny person, but I was, I was only like what, 25 or 26, but you know, when you're 25 or 26 back then, this is like in the early 2000s or something, it was like, you already feel like it's so late and you're, you need to get married tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> this is me at 42 <laughs> saying like, okay, like I, I get why I thought that. And so on the very first date with him, I was like, just to let you know, this is what I want. I want two to three kids, white picket fence. Like I want a family. And I feel like that's my purpose in life. So um, if you're not into that, then like we should probably just stop. Oh, wow. <laughs> like that's how direct <laughs> I was, right? And it wow. wasn't until, uh, you know, four years or whatever into the into the marriage that he changed his mind. And I do think that people have the right to change their mind because as we've talked about, people evolve. And I, I don't think we should be pressured into doing something so serious as having children uh, when we don't really feel like that's something we want to do. And so after he decided 
that uh, he didn't want to have children, I decided that I would stay with him uh, regardless because, and I know that that a lot of people would say, well, why didn't you just leave? And I just thought, well, if you really think about the situation, if I had left in that moment and it wasn't at the time, it wasn't so horrible that I wouldn't have had regrets leaving. So I would have left, you know, a relatively okay marriage. Then the next person I marry, if I chose to have, you know, a baby with someone else would always be sort of compared to this marriage. Mm. And then the baby would then feel the pressure of the sacrifice of a whole life in order to have this baby. And then it would have to live up to this like expectation. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's not healthy for me, for my future partner, potential hypothetical partner, or this future potential hypothetical baby. And I was like, <laughs> this is not, this doesn't make any sense at all. So I was like, no, I'm just going to stick it out. And that was the greatest gift that life had given me. One of the greatest gifts was the ability to see what I truly wanted outside of what I was told that I should want, which is the white picket mm-hmm. fence and the, and the, you know, stable family and Costco on the weekends and all that stuff. Right. <laughs> not to, yeah. I mean, gotta love Costco anyway so so then I started imagining well what does life look like if this huge purpose is now gone and that's what opened me up to thinking life can look like anything I want so now that I have every color in the crayon box to to draw with what am I going to draw and so after that you know, I wasn't so pressured to have children. I didn't feel the need to. And I, you know, dated and had relationships and I didn't really feel like I wanted to have uh, settled down with any of them really. And, and eventually when I turned, I think 40, I had a, a little one week breakdown <laughs> where I cried because I was like, well, that's it. Like, (laughs) like the doors are closed now. And Mm. even though I never really, if I really wanted children, I would have just gone out and made it happen. Like I would have found a suitable partner or made compromises in other parts of my life in order to do that, or um, gone to a sperm donor or applied for adoption or whatever it was. You know, I considered a lot of these things and I was like, do I want to do this? And I was like, no, I don't really, I don't want to go through, um, like for me, I just didn't want to go through like all the, the different things to, to freeze my eggs and all these things that women are doing. It just wasn't a priority for me. So I understood that it was a choice that I was making and I was fine with it. And I could imagine my life being so beautiful in so many different ways, um, And if a child had happened, that would have been beautiful too. But I was like, I'm not stuck to this anymore. So Mm -hmm. after I was 40, it surprised me that I had a moment of mourning for this, um, for this thing that I thought, well, it's not that I want children. It's not that I don't want children. It's more just I'm mourning the loss of the potential of having children. Mm, Right, right. So I cried for about a week and then I was like, this is great. And I really, I just got over it. 
because it wasn't a big thing for me. I had gotten over it before. Then uh, my husband and I were not planning on having children. And I am 42. He's 44. We were like, you know what? We love our lives. We've built these very, you know, well-traveled parties at home. Like we just we have a very full life. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I think I'm just too selfish now. Like, I don't want to run after, like, I don't want to spend my, you know, superfluous budget on diapers. Like I'd rather go out and buy a nice handbag if I have that extra money, (laughs) like or travel somewhere. Like I was like, this is great. So we had, Mm -hmm. you know, built our retirement plan. We're like, nothing changes. We're golden. This is great. And it was an accident. Oh. <laughs> like, I mean, it was like two wow. weeks after we finished our retirement plan. I I thought, oh, this is kind of strange. Maybe I'll just do a pregnancy test. And it, when it was positive, I was like, that's just, there's no way. There's no way. <laughs> I'm 42 wow. and it was just an accident. And I had all, always said to to Joe, my husband, that, you know what, if by some miracle an accident happens, then it's meant to be. But why don't we just not bother? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, an accident happened. So it's meant to be. I will be honest. When I found out, I cried for two months. Oh, I was so sad because I had gotten so used to and excited and grateful for this beautiful life that I'd created of independence and freedom. And I'd I'd spent so much time finding who I am and the things that I wanted for me and, um, you know, my identity and the things that I cared about. And I was like, I'm going to go back to France and and live there part time. And I'm going to, you know, And then all of a sudden, it's the moment you find out you're pregnant, all of it changes. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a gradual leading up to. It's like, oh, you don't drink wine anymore. Don't eat charcuterie. (laughs) (laughs) I know. How can life live with that? Like any any life worth living now. unpasteurized cheeses it's like my whole life was gone no coffee down to like you know zero like or half a little cup oh my goodness so to me I was like not only that but with the pandemic I had moved from Paris back to Vancouver so I had I was just waiting for the pandemic to be over for me to move back to France and sort of live part-time with with my husband our plan was like six months, I'd be there, six months, I'd be here, and he'd come and visit me whenever. And so it was a huge shift in like, who am I and who am I going to be? And am I going to lose everything I've worked so hard to build in terms of the person that I've become? And it wasn't until um, probably the fourth month of pregnancy that I, I finally just started getting a little bit excited about the pregnancy and feeling like, okay, I know this is meant to be, and I know I'm going to be better for it. And I know that, um, 
I'm just going to do my best and see what happens. And I'll, I'll be, I'll be wiser and maybe a little bit less selfish or something like that. I don't know. Um, but it wasn't until the fourth <laughs> month that I was like, okay, I can do it. And now that I'm in my sixth month, um, you know, I still don't know what kind of mother I'm going to be. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us really know until we're there. And I think that it'll be a really interesting practice in how to have your identity shift in such a dramatic way and yet still be so connected to who you are as an individual. So I think that's going to be a very difficult but uh, worthwhile lesson that I'm going to learn. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just as when you think your life was not interesting enough and then the universe threw you something and then so here, take it, Jackie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. It'll be, yeah, it'll, it'll be, um, man, I, it's, it strikes fear in me like nothing else. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Cause like, yeah, I, I felt the same way uh, when I was pregnant as well. And yeah, next year, I really hope that you can come back again because we I'm actually launching a new series called The Right to Mother, right? As W-R-I-T-E. Um, so I think through this journey, um, becoming a mother, I writing has definitely helped a lot untangle so many of my feelings and, and trying to help me think. So yeah, I, so I really hope next year when you come back, um, we can, you know, kind of focus on that subject more about motherhood. Okay. Um, so one question I, I like, I really love from this On Being podcast I listen to is one of my favorite podcasts. And uh, the host always asked the, the, her guest, the first question she will ask, I'm going to ask at the end is what is kind of your spiritual upbringing? It doesn't have to be anything religious. It's really about, you know, a sense of like bigger than usness. And also in your book, I, I think in memoir, you talk about even you were praying to like, oh God, what like, what has, you know, why are you doing this to me? Like, so in a sense that I, I, of course, reading the book, I didn't know that was just you trying to connect to a bigger sense of yourself or outside of yourself, or is it something you actually believed in that something was could potentially taking you somewhere? Yeah, I my family was not very religious or spiritual. Um, you know, we sometimes would go to the Buddhist temple. My mom grew up uh, somewhat Catholic. Um, uh, just because she grew up so poor and, and, um, and a lot of the churches would give away food and things like that. So she kind of had that history with, with Catholicism, uh, for whatever reason, I remember knowing that there was something bigger than myself around the age of four. I think. And I remember, okay, this, this might be a, a really long story, but 
I'm just going to tell it to you because I think it's so funny. Yeah. This is a strange story. So, and I don't, I've never shared this like publicly before, just to my friends. Uh, I grew up in North Vancouver. So it was uh, predominantly like white people. We were kind of like the only Asian family, pretty much. Um, If there was like another Chinese person, they were probably related to us. Like that's how tight it was. And I remember being at school and all the kids were like, I think this was like grade four or five, were like, oh, so-and-so is my boyfriend. I mean, you just say they're your boyfriend, like nothing happens, obviously. But and and I'd be like, oh, I want a boyfriend too. And and someone says, Well, you can't because you can only be boyfriend, girlfriend with like another Chinese person. And I was oh, like, Oh really? Yeah, because I mean, back then it was like there was like we were kids, but also no one knew anything. Like back then as a kid, you just probably thought like Chinese people went with Chinese people and, you know, so it, and I was like, Oh, okay. So like, I just have to wait for a Chinese person then. So that summer I decided I was going to pray every day because I felt so left out. I was going to pray every day for a Chinese, uh, Chinese boy to come to school. And so I would go to the bathroom and kneel in front of the toilet and put my elbows on the toilet seat. And I would pray every day and please God, bring a Chinese boy to school so I can finally have a boyfriend. And please, because I had an older cousin at the time um, named Brian that I idolized because he was just the coolest person ever. And I was like, please name him Brian and um, and let him come to school. So then I prayed every day during the summer, went back to school. And then um, and then we were all in the library, me and my friends. And then someone says, hey, did you see there's like a new kid in, in school this year? And I was like, my heart dropped, like my stomach just like boom, boom, boom. And then I was right. like, oh, really? And they were like, yeah, uh, he's Chinese. And I was like, oh my God. And then I went, what's his name? And they're like, his name is Brian. No way. No joke. So I do think that in some funny way, the universe has like a sense of humor. And Mm. also that it, it wants to be known that there is mystery and magic in life and that, um, you know, it's not all mystery and magic. There's a lot of us in there, obviously, but it's, we're, we're a part of this mystery and magic. And sometimes it's even just for fun, you know? So, Mm. yeah. Anyway, so that's, that doesn't answer your question, but I just love that story. I just think it's so funny. No, that story was so cute and fun. I think it was, and then what you concluded as well, it's like mystery and magic. That's something like, I think no matter your age or your 80, we should all believe in that, not being, being jaded by the everyday life. Because sometimes we could like lost track of like, you know, the mystery and magic in life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think that was beautiful. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So yeah, that's all the question I have. What do you, do you have anything else you want to share or that was good? Yeah, that's good. I don't, <laughs> I feel like that's a perfect place to end off. 
But Jackie, All right. thank you so much. So that as promised, so uh, I'm going to tell you why exactly um, our guest has only been from the city of Toronto. There are so many times you have no idea that I've beat myself up for making this choice because there are so many talented writers and artists, authors outside of Toronto that I wanted to connect with and tell their stories and share their stories with you. But because there has been a visual component from day one for Dear Seekers, as you may or may not know that, you know, my friend Vayu and I would travel to each Seeker's home, do a photo shoot, and we record a podcast in person. But because, you know, pandemic and because I move to uh, the suburb every the suburb and you know motherhood so many different things have happened in my life and many of ours lives um, the original ingredients and formula just didn't work anymore and also it has been a passion project for both my friend by you and I so for me to kind of reach out to another photographer that's outside of the city of Toronto is just not possible and um, so that has been the main reason the sole reason actually why Dear Seekers has only been featured guests from the Toronto the the city of Toronto but moving forward I won't let this to be the reason why Dear Seekers cannot feature and telling stories from beyond the city and um, you know if we happen to have the opportunity to take photos in a seeker's home we'll do it and I also planning to test out some virtual photo shoot I've heard it's really fun so we'll see how that goes and um, if you know an episode cannot have um, photo shoot component to accompany it so be it i guess what can you do um anyway so this has been the reason and what has the pandemic and being mother taught me is being adaptable and always embracing the changes that coming our way is you know a strength um, and a skill frankly that i have to acquire and embrace all right. Thank you so much for sticking to the end. I will, I will see you. I said see you, but I was like, I can't see you. <laughs> I will connect with you in the next episode. Okay.